again. And I just want to say at the start of this, we've had some really, really cool stuff happening in the last couple weeks at City Church. And this has just been a really neat series to see unfold and and gain some momentum. I I woke up this morning and there were uh, 342 acts of love that had been recorded and either City Church has been really good at loving people or we're just turning in our homework right before class starts. Um, But we're at 363 as of right now. Um, So that's neat. Um, And then I just like, I also got a text from a friend who was in from out of town visiting and um, she sent a screenshot that she had texted her sister and said, I just worshiped at City Church in Evansville because she told her sister she was like home for the weekend. And um, her sister sent back, she said, you know, is that the church that like paid off like $1.5 million in medical debt? And she's in Pittsburgh, by the way. And um, she said, yeah, yeah, it is. She said, they talked about that on the local news here. And so like, it has been wild to see that this story like is not just in Evansville, but like it's moved way beyond. And so Pittsburgh and New York and several different states, like it has run um, in different media outlets. And it's just super cool to see a reaction of people saying, oh my gosh, Christians, they're loving people. <laughs> like, th- that's the story. They're, they're loving people. And this is a tangible thing that everybody can sort of recognize. And so it has just been really neat. Um, if you have not been here or don't know what I'm talking about, uh, last week we said as a church that we're going to partner with an organization called RIP Medical Debt. And if we donate $15,000, which we have made the donation, um, we are they can take that and buy debt on pennies, like fractions of pennies on the dollar, and turn that $15,000 into $1.5 million in medical debt at, for people at or below the poverty line that can just be erased. And so they'll get a note like from the hospital that says, you know, hey, we may never meet, but as an act of love in the name of Jesus, your debt has been forgiven, signed City Church. And that'll happen in Vandenberg County. And that's super super cool. Um, And if you want to be a part of making that happen, like I said, we've made the donation. We're also asking for you guys above and beyond normal giving to help offset that because we don't really have that line item in our budget. We just thought it was an amazing opportunity to do something that tangibly expressed love to the people in our city. And so we did it. Um, And so you can make donations for that. Last night, as of eight o'clock, I believe we were just over $8,100. And so we're over halfway there. And if you want to be a part of that, go ahead and make a contribution. Um, as soon as we get there, we will send out a text or an e- text and an email letting you know, like, congratulations, awesome, we made it. Also, you don't need to continue giving to that dedicated line item. Any dollars that we would receive over just because of timing with, like, multiple gifts coming in and online time, all that stuff. Um, Any money we receive over that will go towards benevolence here in the city of Evansville. Um, It's not going to go into anybody's pocket. So that's the deal. If you want to get on board with just a really cool act of generosity, do it. Um, We'd love to have you participate with us. So now let's do the thing that we're supposed to be doing right now. Um, Just had to like share a little bit update. And tons of people are asking, and it's been really, really cool this week. So... um, I have learned more this week than I think I have before this, this truth that I already knew, but I learned new dimensions of it, um, and that is that words really matter. 
words matter and not just what words you use, but how you say them. And linguists have a phrase that sort of perfectly demonstrates this reality. It is a, it is a seven-word sentence that has seven different meanings based on which word you emphasize. Okay, so you emphasize a different word every time you say it, and it says seven completely different things. The sentence is, I never said she stole my money. Okay, so we're just going to do it because if we don't, you'll be trying to mentally do it for the next two minutes and you won't listen to anything I say. I never said she stole my money. I never said she stole my money. I never said, I never said she stole my money. 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 Right? Every single one of those, a completely different meaning. And the only thing I changed was which word I emphasized. I have stared and stared and read and reread a five-word sentence this week. And I wish so badly I could go back in time and listen to it said and know which words were emphasized. That word, that sentence is, and who is my neighbor? It's a part of the dialogue that goes on in this passage in Luke 10 that we've been looking at. And it is a a pivotal, crucial moment in the conversation. And I so badly wish that I could have heard him ask it. This guy asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I think it's an unbelievably important question. And there is so much, not just in this interaction with Jesus, but for us today in that question. And so we're going to look at it. And last week, we we really went into some of the dynamics that are happening in this conversation. But it's a conversation in Luke chapter 10 that goes on between Jesus and an expert in the religious law. So this is a super, super religious crafty, smart individual who decides that he is going to have a dialogue with Jesus. And so it starts at verse 25, and and this is the way it goes. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I just want to stop because in the rabbinic tradition, in first century life and in in Jewish culture and for the next couple centuries after, this was a totally normal thing to happen. Okay, a rabbi goes into a community and somebody wants to understand what is this rabbi talking about, the way he would start that conversation is to ask a question. And this was a question that people would ask a lot, right? This sort of like told me what school you were in, right? There were several different rabbis who when they heard this question, they would have their own response for that question. Right? And so if you went to Rabbi Shammai and you asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit life of the age to come? Shammai would send you away and say, you don't have time for that answer. If you went to Rabbi Hillel, he would give you a completely different answer. And so different rabbis had different thoughts on how you answer <clears throat> this and other questions. And so it was totally normal for someone to ask Jesus, What must I do to inherit life in the age to come? Jesus understands, though, that this guy's not just asking as an intellectual exercise. 
Luke records, he wants to test Jesus. The language there could read trap. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants to expose Jesus. Basically, either Jesus completely agrees with him and other conservative people and has been doing a horrible job living that out based on the company he keeps, or Jesus has a very unorthodox view, doesn't take the Torah seriously, and should be exposed as a lunatic and a danger to Jewish society. Those are the two outcomes that this guy's looking for. And so he tests Jesus, and he asks him, what's your interpretation of this? Jesus sees this trap coming from a mile away and responds, what's written in the law? How do you read it, or how do you interpret what the law says? Basically, what's your answer to that question that you just asked me? And I get, Jesus looks like a Jedi here, like literally a Jedi, um, but this answering a question with a question was not just invented um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, Jesus is doing also what is normal here. It's totally common in the setting like this for a question to be answered with another question. That's how you'd go back and forth and try to like understand each other. And so Jesus asked him, what, how do you interpret the law? What do you think the answer is? And so this guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So basically Jesus says, yeah, I agree with you. We're we're on the same page. That is where this story should have ended. Right, but this guy, I don't know if you know anybody like this, he just can't let it go. Okay, I don't know if you know a guy or gal like this, that, that no matter what the conversation is, any sort of questioning or back and forth, they have to have the last word, right? They, they have to like put their own little thing at the end of it. Even if you're in complete agreement, they've got to like say that one more thing that shows that they know more or they understand it better than you or, or they, they under, yeah, you, you know, you know who they are. Um, don't look at the person next to you. And this guy is one of those guys. He can't just leave it, right? This is the way it should have, it should have ended right here. This guy wants to trap Jesus. Jesus understands that's what's happening. And so he responds in good kind and maneuvers his way around it. This guy says exactly what Jesus would say. They should agree. They should encourage each other to love God and love others better, and and they move on. But that's not what happens. This guy decides, I have to win this. Because I know this Jesus guy is no good. I've got to expose him. And so I can get him, maybe, on our definition of neighbor. Because Jesus may have a different definition than me. Right? This guy would have thought through who neighbor was. If this is a central piece of the Torah, if this is part of the great commandment from God, religious experts would have every word planned out. And so this guy knows what he thinks neighbor means, and so he's going to trap Jesus either by showing that Jesus doesn't have the same definition, Jesus has a wrong definition of who a neighbor is, or Jesus has a right definition of a neighbor and he's not living it out correctly. And so he asks again, 
and who is my neighbor? And that's the question. And there are two things that are going on here. There are two dynamics that are, that are at work behind the scenes. And it's, it's, this guy is wanting to win. It, right? it says, to just, wanting to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? So he's wanting to win the point because he is a hyper-religious critic. Right? He is an overly religious critic who, who has a spirit of legalism and, and rightism. I don't think that's a word, but I just made it up. And he has to be right. He has his definition of what holiness is. And in his mind, you say things that agree with me or you're wrong. Right? I have the monopoly on holiness and what it means to be good and to be right. And Jesus does not do this very well. Right? This guy has a, an overly religious, critical heart, and Jesus doesn't do religion very well. Right? Jeff talked about it last week, this, this idea that any religion says that if, if I believe in God and then I do everything that God says, then I'm saved. That's how the plan works. God says do this, I honor that, I do that, and if I do it perfectly, I'm saved and in his good graces. Jesus comes and he says, no, 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 if you believe, you are saved. That's all you gotta do. Put your faith in me, you're in, and then you get to live your life as a giant thank you note. And so everything you do, you will do things that are in alignment with me, but, but you're gonna do them because you believe it's the best thing to do. You're gonna do it out of gratitude. You're gonna do it because you find a more full life there. You're not gonna do it out of obligation or fear or guilt or, or shame or, or pride, Right? And that's what this guy's got working on. He is so sure that he knows exactly the right way to live out his faith that he has no room for anyone who might disagree with him. The problem is, is that Jesus does not fit well with those types of folks. Right? At the broadest level, I said there's two different dynamics. There, there's, a, there's a specific, more narrow dynamic that's going on here, but there's a more broad one, and that is that this guy has an overly religious, critical heart. And Jesus does not mesh well with overly religious, critical hearts. Jesus cares far more about intentions than he does words, actions, behaviors. Those are secondary. But all this guy cares about are making sure that people are saying the right words and doing the right behaviors and acting the right way and keeping the right kind of company and doing the things that fit into how he defines goodness and holiness. And it's really easy to think that this happened 2,000 years ago in religious communities, but we've got it figured out because we've had a long time to learn. But maybe, maybe we do the exact same thing today. Right? I'm gonna throw out a hypothetical scenario here, completely made up, just I was brainstorming Maybe a church somewhere someday would decide that they were going to do a series on like engaging with their neighbors and how to love their neighbors. And they could, they could partner with an organization that, that eliminated medical debt and that created like an app that you could log in different ways that you've loved your neighbor. Again, hypothetical. I don't know anybody that's really doing that. But if they did, I could see in that church... The second that you start talking about things like recording acts of love in a phone or writing checks to pay off medical debt, that people could interpret that in very, very different ways. 
right? Maybe some folks could have the reaction when they hear about this idea of like writing down acts of love in our phone that like, finally, we have a counter. We have a way to measure this. We are in, right? Like I, I, I walked my neighbor's dog and so I put it in my phone and, and I moved the trash cans from my neighbor and I put it in the phone and we're gonna get to 5,000 and that's exactly what the Bible asked us to do. And so we're a perfectly faithful church that's got it totally figured out. We're in. Or we're gonna write a check and we're gonna pay off a whole bunch of medical debt and that's gonna be awesome. And we've done a good thing, and, and other people have looked at, and looked at it and been encouraged by it. And, and so they recognize that, like, we're a church that gets it. We've totally got it figured out. We are good. That's maybe one set of reactions that some people may or may not have in this hypothetical church. Um, I don't know any of them. And then there's also people who might say, why the heck are we writing down things that we've done into a computer screen? Like, why, why should I want to put that out there? Like, I'm just going to do this stuff naturally. That's what Jesus people do, right? Serving and loving our neighbors is something that we should naturally do. Why would you, you want to write that down? Are you, are you just so full of yourself or proud of yourself that you need to, like, put that out there for other people to see? Or, or where did we get this 5,000 number? Right? Do we think that somehow if we get 5,000 that, that we're suddenly the perfect church that Jesus imagined? What a prideful thing to think. And great, we, we write a check for medical debt, but like seriously, you're gonna call the papers about it? Why do we want the media involved with that? Do we just need a giant pat on our own back? Or great, you write a check and it turned into a million and a half dollars of medical debt relief, but that's not gonna change a system that is fundamentally broken And regardless of how much money you raise, this year in America, the single largest cause of personal bankruptcy is going to be medical debt. So good job, guys. Again, hypothetically, maybe I've run into some people who might think something like that. What if there was a different way of looking at it? Because in some of those comments, I think I hear overly religious, critical mindsets. I hear boxes drawn around what holiness looks like. I see boundaries and, and words and actions that, that we are or are not supposed to do in order to be in, in right standing with the law of God. I gotta tell you, I think there's a different way of looking at some of that. And maybe it just involves asking Jesus to to lead us personally and corporately in this and ask him for a whole bunch of grace in the process. But when I see a report every week, I don't see anybody's names. I just see a list of amazing ways that we are trying to do this, right? We got people that are spending time with the sick, people that are recognizing they, they have friends and family who are lonely and they're identifying those people and they're making time in their day to just go spend time with someone who is alone. They're recognizing people in their world who are grieving and saying, I'm just gonna check in on that person every single day. They're recognizing they have spouses that are completely exhausted and and they they are taking time to literally, one of them is, I put down my beer and listened to my wife. And maybe that's really trivial in your mind, 
Or maybe that would be the most refreshing thing in the world for somebody to do. My job's not to figure out where Jesus weighs any of that. My job's not to judge the, the motivations with which somebody did it. I'm just excited that we have people who are loving their neighbors. And I am encouraged and I am pushed to do more when I read it. Right? And, and, and I will take a headline that says Christians are loving people any day of the week. Okay, and, and I don't care who gets the credit. It was awesome to see different churches in our city sharing the story and celebrating with us what was happening here and, and like cheering us on because they recognize, man, we got brothers and sisters that, that are doing something good and people resonate with that. And it is good for Jesus's church to look like we're loving people. And until we're completely sick of all of the stories about Christians who are just loving people nonstop, I will take all of those headlines, right? Until that's the narrative that we are just so stinking good at loving people that we're tired of hearing about it, let's celebrate that Jesus' bride looks like someone who loves her neighbors. Obviously, there is no check that's going to completely change a system. Obviously, there's no counter that's going to measure faithfulness or, or show a perfect love of God. But I think the intention is really, really good. And I think it could be something that moves us towards gospel celebration rather than religious criticism. That's at the broad level, what's going on here. I think everything in this man's life could be boiled down to that issue. He's got his own definition of what good, of what holy, of what perfect looks like. And anybody that doesn't fit into that is wrong. And Jesus wants to blow that up and say, no, buddy, there's a completely different picture of life that you're missing. Jesus asks, the guy asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the story that is so familiar, right? The, the story of the good Samaritan. There's a Jewish man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a route that those people would have been familiar with in the area. And it was a shady road where people got robbed and beaten up on all the time. And a guy, a good Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's robbed beaten with an inch of his life, and left on the side of the road for dead. As he's laying there, a priest, the holiest dude you can be if you're a Jewish person, goes by, makes sure he stays out of the way, and keeps going. A little bit later, Levite, person who would serve under the priest, second holiest kind of guy if you're a Jewish person, goes by, takes the exact same route. And then a Samaritan goes by, and the Samaritan puts the guy up on his own animal, rides him into town, makes sure he's taken care of medically, makes sure that he finds a safe place to live, makes sure that he's given care and security and protection until he's better, says, I'll cover all of it, I'm good for it, leaves a deposit to make sure he knows, and he's on his way. That's the story we know. And that story, it's so powerful 
and it has been told so many times that it has actually changed what the word Samaritan means. Right? When we hear the word Samaritan, we think good person. That's the power that this story has had. We naturally associate Samaritan with good. That is not what Jesus' audience heard. Right? If I were telling you the story, I would probably say, and the good Isis soldier came by. Yes, it's that level. And the Taliban leader came by and helped this man on the side of the road. That's who Jesus is talking about here. The Samaritan was not a good person in any good Jewish man's mind. Definitely not this guy. So Jesus tells a story and then Jesus finishes by asking another question. Jesus finishes the story. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. I think it's worth noting, he doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even say the word. Which of these was a neighbor to this guy? And I, I, again, I want to be there. I want to watch it because I can just see this, this, the one who had mercy on him. That's who. If I can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan because it is so far outside of his mindset that a Samaritan could be the hero of the story. Jesus is intentionally blowing up every definition of neighbor that this guy has. And this guy, again, had a definition of what a neighbor was, who a neighbor was. And you have a definition of who your neighbor is. Right? This guy, in his mind, the, the, the two answers that probably would have been acceptable from Jesus were my own family and people in the Jewish community. That's who we're taught in the law. That's who we're to protect in the law. There is also a, a command in the law right after love your neighbor as yourself that you are to treat the stranger that resides among you as your neighbor. And so he probably had those options in his mind. But realistically, he thought, my neighbor is my family. My neighbor is my fellow Jewish community members. Jesus gives a completely different definition of neighbor. He also gives a completely different way to love your neighbor. And next week, we're going to go into that. We're going to unpack that more. We're going to look at specific elements of the story. I can't wait. Like, there's all sorts of cultural things going on that, that make what the Samaritan does so profound. But before we can ask how we love our neighbor, we have to understand who our neighbor is first. Right? And so if we look at this story, who is our neighbor? And in the same way that this guy had a definition of who neighbor was to him, you have a definition of who a neighbor is to you. And maybe you would speak it out loud, and maybe it would just be something that you internally keep to yourself. But we all have some sort of classification or hierarchy or, or map of who our neighbors are. And generally, the closer someone is in proximity to us, the more likely we are to think of them as our neighbor, right? Or the, the more someone looks like us, 
the more likely they are to be our neighbor in our minds. Right? And so what do I mean? If I were to ask you who your neighbor is, the people that live under your roof, you would say those are the kind of people that God wants you to love like yourself. And then going beyond that, your immediate family, the, the houses that surround yours or the apartments that surround your unit, those are your neighbors. Mr. Rogers even says those are your neighbors. And then maybe you hadn't necessarily thought of it this way, but you would recognize that the people that you go to work with are your neighbors. You're in close proximity to them. You share life with them. You spend more time with them a lot of times than you do your own family. Those are your neighbors, right? And so, so your coworkers, your, your employees, your boss, your classmates, your professors, teammates, those are all my neighbors. Then does it extend farther beyond that to maybe your city? Are the people of your city actually your neighbor? Anybody that resides in your community, your neighbor? Are people from different socioeconomic classes your neighbor? People of a different race, your neighbor? Are people from a completely different background and set of circumstances your neighbor? Are people on the other side of the world your neighbor? Maybe intellectually, you could nod your head to all that. Yeah, they're my neighbor. But not just intellectually, practically, in real life, do your actions state you believe those people are your neighbors? Think back to your last week, right? And this is not something I'm doing pointing a finger. This is a convicting thought I had this week, and that's why I shared it with you. Looking back at the intentional acts of love that you did this week, how many of them were for people who looked like you versus not? How many of them were for people that were in very close proximity to you? How many of them were for people that you sought after who have very different circumstances from you? At what point does your definition of neighbor start to break down? Whatever that box is, whatever that list is, that's what Jesus is blowing up with this story. Because if we actually take Jesus at his word, if we look at how he defines neighbor in this story, there's a whole bunch of people that become our neighbors. And it's not fun. There, there's this book, Who is My Neighbor? And I'll just give you one guess as to how I thought the title fit. Um, this is a guy, Wayne Gordon. He wrote it several years ago. And it's 40 different three to five page meditations or stories that highlight a different aspect of who this man on the side of the road is. What is it that makes him him? What is Jesus saying about who my neighbor is based on what is in this story? And, and so here's the list of what he comes up with. My neighbor is hurting. My neighbor needs help. My neighbors are those who cannot help themselves. My neighbor is someone who appears on my path, someone who's been robbed, who is half dead, who is naked, who is unable to ask for help, who is of a different race, is a stranger, someone who's been stripped, is a foreign traveler, has been beaten up, might require me to take a risk, can't walk, looks horrible, is of a different religion, is destitute, is a victim of injustice, who has been passed by. My neighbor can't say thank you. My neighbor is someone who's been wounded, somebody nobody wants to help. Somebody, my neighbor is lonely. My neighbor will cost me some time. My neighbor is visible, is a victim. Someone who's been violated, is vulnerable, is a human being, feels humiliated, feels helpless. My neighbor is poor. My neighbor is someone I'm afraid to help. 
someone who is dangerous to help, someone who's discouraged, someone who might cost me money, someone who's in need of tender, loving care, someone who feels defeated, someone I am able to help. If anybody that fits in one of those categories is our neighbor, we got a lot of neighbors. That's who Jesus is describing. And he's asking who becomes that guy's neighbor. That's a question that he asks us. This, this book is it's awesome. It's just, and it's a fun read. It's not a hard one. Like I said, it's just three to five minute meditations or even just cool stories. Um, we got a bunch of copies and we want you to have one. And I just encourage you, use it as a devotion. Read it, talk about it at dinner. Um, for, yeah, just grab it for free at the Welcome Center on your way out. Um, just to make sure we got enough copies, like maybe one per household, if that's cool. Um, you can grab it on Amazon if you need more. But walk through this. I encourage you to walk through the exercise of asking that really, really dangerous question, who is my neighbor? Because the guy who asked it, he was trying to figure out who he could exclude. Right? He's asking, how do I limit the number of people that I have to love? And Jesus blows that up and says, no, there's a whole bunch of people you've never thought about that you have to love. That's the life that I came to give, the life that I offer, and the life that I ask you to give to this world. That is a crazy definition of who a neighbor is. Right? Because neighbors are no longer just family, friends, coworkers, classmates, people in the same circles as me. Right? My neighbor is the opioid addict. My neighbor is, is a Republican. My neighbor is a Democrat. My neighbor is, is someone who, who has had an abortion. My neighbor is someone who stands outside of a clinic and yells at girls and doctors. My neighbor is someone that I completely disagree with. My neighbor is homeless. My neighbor is of a different religion from me. My neighbor is one of the the thousand children in our community who are in foster care. And for those thousand, we have 150 homes to place them. And so they live in group homes where they sleep on the office floors of DCS caseworkers. If they're my neighbor, that has to bother me. My neighbor is somebody who needs help. And God has positioned me to be able to help them. It's a dangerous question to ask, who is my neighbor? Because once Jesus answers, you can't unhear it. Who is my neighbor? And it's a hard, it's a hard answer from Jesus. Right? It is not an easy thing to do to love people the way that Jesus says to love them. And again, we didn't give you a whole bunch of practical tools to walk away and say, I know what to do this. Just live with some unresolved tension in your life. This week, maybe don't try to figure out how to do it perfectly. 
but just ask the question, who are they? And let God open your eyes. And again, this is a hard thing that Jesus requires us to do, and it would be worse except Jesus does it himself. Like every bit of talk, he backs up with his own life. There is no requirement he places on anybody else that he didn't do himself. If you look at the people that Jesus spent his time with, the people that Jesus loved, the people that Jesus saw as his neighbor, they were the religious critics. They were the Samaritans. They were the tax collectors, the beggars, the lepers, women, terrorists, liars, the rich, the poor, children, laborers, outcasts, pagans, prostitutes, insert anything here, and he loved them and saw them as his neighbor. And so he's not asking us to do something he himself didn't do. In fact, he went one further, and he loved them so much that he would die on a cross for them, and he loved you so much that he died on a cross for you. Despite everything you have or will do, he loves you. He loves you enough to die for you. It is beyond any love that he would ever ask of us. He has done it himself on our behalf. And so I think there are a couple of different questions that that we really walk away with today. And one is if you've never like really heard that story, you've heard about Good Samaritans, but the idea that a God would love you enough to die for you so that you could then give that love away to others. Maybe that's a foreign idea. And if it is, I want you to know like it's not, it's not just hype. That's, that's the real thing. That's the invitation that Jesus gives. Everyone is welcome in the family. Put your faith in me. There's grace to cover all of it. And if you've not said yes to that offer, you should. It's really, really, really good. Maybe the other question is is that dangerous one. Who is my neighbor? Once you see, you can't unsee. So ask with caution. But once you have seen the love of God made real in the life, of a neighbor, you don't ever want a different existence. It is so good to experience the life that Jesus calls us to live. Not because we have to, not because he's mad, not because we need to be afraid of him, but because there is joy and fulfillment found in life with Jesus. Loving our neighbor is the best way to live. And so I encourage you, ask the big old scary question. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus, would you show us who our neighbors are? Jesus, would you open our eyes? Jesus, I thank you. I thank you first and foremost for the love that you have for people like us, for people like me. Jesus, that you would, you would sacrificially give yourself on our behalf. 
It's just beyond me. And Lord, I pray that, that every person in this room who's never said, Jesus, I'll give you a shot. I'll take you up on the offer. I pray that they would have the courage to do so. May today be the day that they say, okay, I'll do it. And Jesus, would every person in this room have the courage to ask, who's my neighbor? Jesus, may we be people that have your eyes in this world. May we see the people that surround us with your eyes. May we be given a heart for the people who look nothing like us, for the people who are broken, for the people who are messy, for the people who suck the life out of us, for the, Lord, for the billions around the world who do not even have access to the gospel. May we see them as our neighbors. May we see them as people in need that you have positioned us to help. And may we help. Jesus, may your kingdom come here on earth like it is in heaven. And may it come through us, your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.